0: already, in some parts of the country, it's cheaper to install new solar plants and use that electricity than it is to run existing plants to produce power. That's not true everywhere, but in some places and with continued cost declines, that becomes truer and truer.
1: Welcome to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast featuring conversations with leaders of the energy transition, hosted by Smart Energy Decisions founder, John Fiella. In each episode of Smart Energy Voices, John digs deep with industry movers and shakers to reveal insights you can learn from in their stories, personalities, and visions for the future. All right, let's dive in.
2: Hi, everyone. I'm John Faella, and welcome back to Smart Energy Voices. We're very excited today to bring you a special conversation with our guest, Becca jones Albertus, the Director of Solar Energy Technologies Office at the Department of Energy. Last month, the Department of Energy released the Solar Future Study, detailing the significant role that solar will play in decarbonizing the nation's power grid. The study showed that by 2035, solar energy has the potential to power 40% of the nation's electricity, drive deep carbonization of the grid, and employ as many as 1.5 million people without raising electricity prices. We're so lucky to be joined by the mind and leader behind that study. We've got so much to cover, we're gonna jump right into it. So Becca, welcome to Smart Energy Voices.
0: Thanks, John, it's a pleasure to be here.
2: So to get started, why don't you tell us about your role and the work you're doing at the solar office?
0: Yes. Solar Energy Technologies Office, or Solar Office, is one of the applied energy offices within the Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy at DOE. We're focused on accelerating the advancement and deployment of technology to enable an equitable transition to a decarbonized energy system. So that means that we work on advancing both photovoltaic or the solar panel technology as well as uh, concentrating solar thermal power. We work on addressing market barriers and deployment challenges. We work on how to integrate solar into the, the energy system and how to support entrepreneurs and U.S. businesses in the solar industry. So, comprehensively looking to how we can accelerate solar deployment and increase the benefits that come to the U.S. from that deployment.
2: Okay, well, there's a lot there. You've got a big job and really looking forward to getting into it in a lot of detail with you during our our conversation, Becca. Why don't we start by giving our listeners a chance to better understand the Solar Energy Technologies Office and kind of the role that it plays in the Department of Energy. Why don't you give us an overview of how the Solar Office fits into the Department of Energy?
0: Yeah, so the Department of Energy... Has broad work that spans early stage scientific research, applied work that's focused on specific technology areas like solar, as well as work to secure our nuclear weapons and environmental remediation of nuclear sites. So, a very broad mission. And the solar office is one of the applied energy offices that is working together within the offices of energy efficiency and renewable energy and and other applied offices in DOE to drive an equitable transition to a decarbonized energy system. The solar office had a budget of about $280 million last year in these efforts.
2: Wow. So that's $280 million devoted to solar technologies in the solar office. Becca, how would you describe the mission of the solar office?
0: Yeah, our our mission is really to accelerate technology advancement and deployment of solar technologies. And I say accelerate because it's very important as stewards of taxpayer dollars that we're doing things that the private sector wouldn't do on its own. But that means either it wouldn't happen on its own or it wouldn't happen as quickly. If we can make something that private sector might do over the course of a decade. If we can use our investments to make that happen in two years instead, we consider that a very good use of funding, especially as we're trying to address climate change. So really focused on accelerating both technology advancement and deployment of solar.
2: So it's great to see such intense focus on solar. I'm curious, are there offices like the solar office devoted to other renewable energy sectors?
0: Yes, within energy efficiency and renewable energy at DOE, we have a wind office, a water technologies office that does both hydropower and marine energy and a geothermal office. We have an energy efficiency sector, which focuses on building technologies, advanced manufacturing technologies, weatherization providing assistance to states and federal entities, and a transportation sector focused on fuel cells, electric vehicles, biofuels, and other transportation technologies.
2: Yeah. Well, it's great to have a clear picture of that very granular, targeted focus on these important renewable technologies. Back to the solar office for a second. What would you say is is the most important work that, that you're doing there today?
0: I put that in a few kind of prongs or themes. One is we're working hard to drive technology innovation, both PV and the concentrating solar thermal power, CSP, to reduce costs and remove market barriers. Second is we're working hard to enhance solar's ability to support the reliability, the resilience, and the security of our power grid. Third is we're working to grow opportunities for good jobs for all Americans in the solar industry by supporting entrepreneurs and providing workforce training. And and fourth is, in all that we do, working hard to ensure that the benefits and the opportunities that come from increased solar deployment are distributed equitably. This is part of the work DOE is doing towards President Biden's Justice 40 goals, which are to provide 40% of the benefits of our investments to under-resourced communities.
2: Yeah, you've touched on a couple things that I'd really like to get into in more detail because that that work is kind of clearly aligned with some of the key findings of the study. Moving on to talk about the solar future study, which is really a very, very impressive piece of work. And congratulations once again on, on your leadership there. Tell us a little bit about the genesis of the study. What were the drivers? What were the the goals behind putting it together and and developing it?
0: One of the most fun parts of my job is supporting a vision for the solar industry. And the solar industry has been just changing so incredibly rapidly over the prior decade. And we had a vision study we published in in 2012 called the Sunshot Vision Study, which was really focused on driving down the cost of solar electricity to unlock deployment. In 2016, we did an update to that study. And again, just reflecting the rapid changes, we felt it was time to do another look and really to focus on the role that solar can play in decarbonizing our electricity grid and our energy system. In contrast to our prior vision studies, which were very solar focused, now that we have unlocked solar deployment, the solar future study was really focused of sol- on solar in the context of the energy system and all of the interactions and interplays that are there between solar and other technologies.
2: Interesting. I was unaware of that history of the prior studies. If you think about the 2012 SunShot vision study, and as you describe the objectives, it sounds to me like almost 10 years later a lot of that vision has been realized if the vision articulated in the solar futures study actually comes to fruition that that will be that will truly be fantastic so let's get into some of the key findings i guess there's solar's projected to go from 3% to 40% of grid power by 2035 Tell us a little more about that. I mean, how does that how does that happen? What are the key elements of that very dramatic increase?
0: The study looks at a scenario where the grid is decarbonizing and it's decarbonizing in line with the the president's goal of a clean power grid by 2035. And so it looks at advanced tech technology innovation and and cost reductions across all clean energy technologies on top of, of a decarbonization policy. And what it finds is that the optimal way to decarbonize the grid by 2035 is to dramatically grow solar, wind, and battery storage deployment. The modeling that we do, which is from the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, they have a model that we call the REEDS model, the Regional Energy Deployment System Model, which models the least cost pathways to to realize a set of constraints on the power system. And that finds that solar deployment goes from 3% of our power in 2020 to about 40% in 2035. Again, large increases in in wind and battery storage as well. This is about 1,000 gigawatts of solar deployment in AC terms where we're, we're in the 80s of gigawatts today. So more than a tenfold increase over, over these 15 years.
2: It's very ambitious. <laughs> Needless to say, one of the things I like about this and the way you're positioning it is that it's in the context of decarbonization goals, which I guess the goal is to decarbonize the grid by 2035. One of the interesting things that we've seen with our community, which is principally large power users, Is that up until just a couple of years ago, they were focused on hitting renewable energy targets, whereas now they're focused on hitting these broader emission reduction targets, which call for a whole constellation of solutions, you know, including energy efficiency. So it's it's not just hitting a renewable target, it's reducing demand, reducing usage. And it sounds like all of the different renewable technologies, plus energy efficiency are really going to have to be leveraged in order to achieve this goal of a a decarbonized grid.
0: Absolutely. And I'll just add, there's two pieces to the goal. The first is decarbonizing the grid by 2035, because that's an aggressive but achievable timeline for the power grid itself. But we couple that with President's goal of decarbonizing our economy by 2050 and decarbonizing the economy will involve significant electrification of transportation, moving to electric vehicles, of certain industrial processes and building technologies. And that electrification is going to grow our our power needs, our electricity needs significantly. So it's a feedback loop then with the power grid itself. So we're, we're growing that electricity demand significantly, and that plays into even more solar deployment over the next three decades.
2: Yeah. So 3% to 40%, as I said, it's kind of super ambitious. What are your thoughts on the key things that will have to happen in order to, in fact, achieve that very lofty, ambitious goal?
0: What that looks like is taking last year's solar deployment, which was a record breaking year for solar, and Over the next five years, deploying an average of double that amount for the next five years, and then the five years after that, deploying a doubling of that again on average, or said another way, about a 20% growth rate year over year. So that's very rapid growth, but it is very much in line with the extremely rapid growth we've seen for solar over the prior decade in 2010 solar was a negligible fraction of our electricity supply and by the by the last five or six years of the decade it's been you know about 30% of new electricity generating capacity so solar's already been on a very rapid growth rate and we just need that to continue but as that continues it has big implications for siting and permitting of systems for regulation for supply chains for workforce development we talk about all these in the study. I think we'll we'll get into more of these as, as we talk, I'm sure, but that kind of growth certainly comes with implications much, much more broadly.
2: Yeah. One of the things that I've noticed that's interesting, Becca, is that like up until about 18 months ago, the real driver has been corporate demand, whereas in the last 18 months, I've really seen utilities get with the program, if you will, for lack of a better term, and say, hey, they they've accepted the reality that they need to switch their generation sources from fossil fuels to renewables. And I guess that'll be a a huge part of this. So moving on to job creation, and and it's something that I know is very important and something we think is one of the key benefits of the energy transition. I guess there's reference that the range is from 500,000 jobs to 1.5 million jobs. Tell us a little more about that that element of the study.
0: Yeah, so as we scale up solar deployment that comes with job growth. And there's a range in the number of jobs that we envision developing over the next 15 years. And that's to a large degree because of some uncertainty in how much solar that we deploy will be on rooftops, residential solar, commercial solar, and how much will be large utility scale. So solar deployment on rooftops has a much higher job creation rates than utility scale. So there's a range there, at a minimum a doubling of the solar workforce from where we are today, but up to as much as a factor of six if more of the deployment ends up being rooftop. Our simulations and modeling were fairly robust in results in the total amount of solar deployment, but there are many ways to, to shift how much of that is rooftop versus utility scale. And so we don't put a lot of stake in in making claims about how much we'll be deploying in, in which sector, but expect strong growth in both.
2: Yeah, yeah. We produce several research studies on an annual basis. And one is our State of Distributed Energy Resources Survey, which is about to be released in a couple of weeks. We do that in partnership with NRG. And of all the current DER is deployed, on-site solar, behind-the-meter solar is clearly the number one distributed energy resource that's currently deployed. And when you ask people what their plans are going forward, and these are large corporates, higher education, institutional, and municipal customers, large customers, they cite on-site solar as being the number one distributed energy resource that they plan on deploying going, going forward so i guess if you've got this kind of residential movement large cni movement utility scale movement i guess all three of those levers have to be cranked up to make this happen and and i guess it does make sense the job creation is probably going to be greatest in that in that residential and and, and in the distributed side as far as health and cost savings are concerned the kind of the health benefits associated with greater adoption of solar is important and the kind of resulting cost savings are important so i've lumped those together they probably need to be covered separately so let's talk first about the health savings and then the cost savings what do you see as as the as the health benefits associated with this rapid growth in solar deployment
0: yeah, so the health savings from decarbonizing the grid really come from air quality benefits, so avoided emissions of particulate matter, sulfur dioxide, nitrogen dioxide, in the power sector as well as the transportation sector. So getting to a clean grid alone translates to about a $300 billion in savings over the 30-year study horizon in, in health benefits. And then electrifying transportation in the amount that occurs in the study, that further lowers nitrogen oxides and particulate matter and saves nearly an additional $100 billion in health damages from from these reduced vehicle emissions. So, So really, it all comes from enhancing air quality and how we translate that into health savings numbers.
2: Got it. Okay. How about on the cost side? Tell us about the cost savings that are anticipated.
0: Yeah, one of the really exciting results of the study that was surprising to me was that we can get to a decarbonized grid without increasing electricity costs that comes from continued cost declines of in wind and solar and battery storage today already in some parts of the country it's cheaper to install new solar plants and use that electricity than it is to run existing plants to produce power not that's not true everywhere but but in some places and with continued cost declines that becomes truer and truer throughout the country and so we're able to get to a decarbonized grid again with, without increasing electricity rates which I think is is really amazing.
2: Yes and and important right because if we make this transition and consumer costs go up that would not be a good thing. So from a key finding standpoint kind of solar penetration goes from 3% to 40% over a million jobs created health benefits cost benefits What, if any, surprises were there in the results of the study for you?
0: Other than being able to electrify without increasing costs, maybe not a surprise to me, but I think to to many others is that we can have a reliable and resilient grid when we have a grid that can run on 80% plus wind and solar. Wind and solar and and the battery storage that, that is needed along with them they connect to the grid through power electronics, through inverters, which is very different than our conventional generating resources, which have spinning turbines that provide inertia to the grid. In addition, wind and solar are variable resources. And obviously, the sun doesn't shine at all times of the day. The wind doesn't blow at all times of the day. And the fact that we can have a reliable grid where we can have power that meets resource adequacy requirements with with these generating sources, I think, is will be surprising to some. It was not surprising to me, but that's because I live in this technology world. And then I think also just looking at how a clean grid can enable electrification in, in these other sectors and support broader decarbonization goals for the economy is an important result.
2: Yeah, yeah. You've mentioned vehicle electrification a couple times during the conversation. And we completed some research earlier this year focused not on individual EVs, but on vehicle fleet electrification. And the plans right now at the municipal level, at the institutional level, at the corporate level to electrify fleets is really tremendous. And it's it's all in line with these goals to hit emission reduction targets. But that's that's clearly going to be a big piece of this. Let's move on to talk about the implications of the study. Maybe we could start with economics. How much much money do you think is going to be needed? And where is the funding going to come from? I know you've referenced there won't necessarily be cost in electricity rates once this is executed, but there's the cost to get to where we need to get to. That is really what I'd like to address here. Right.
0: So we find that it can take over... $500 billion in additional capital costs to get to this decarbonized grid. And we expect that funding is going to come from the same sources that are supplying the capital for energy projects today, leveraging a variety of private and some amount of public financing mechanisms, including tax equity, which has been really important for solar and wind deployments, traditional loans, and and other financing mechanisms. So I I don't think any any difference in changes, but certainly a larger share of funding needed to go into the energy sector.
2: So many elements of this are included, I guess, in current potential legislation, but extending tax equity benefits, coming out with a freestanding storage, ITC. There's so much money flowing into kind of ESG funds and environmental investment funds without those in place that when those get in place, it's clearly in the financial community, this is viewed as one of the biggest Investment and commercial opportunities of of our generation. I found it interesting. Jigar Shah, who is a friend of Smart Energy Decisions, went from generate capital where he was funding development of so many of these technologies, is now running the loan office. And the fact that he's at the wheel there, I think, is encouraging for many that federal dollars are going to be ployed effectively to help. Drive the drive the energy transition.
0: Yeah, we're very very excited to have Jigger with his vision and creativity and, and energy uh, behind the the helm at the loan program office during this time.
2: Yeah, and his track record—he gets things done. You mentioned an equitable transition, and that's been referenced several times during our conversation so far. And I'd really like to get into that piece of it because of how important it is. How do we ensure that this transition is, in fact, equitable, Becca?
0: great question and something that's really important to me. And I think the the first piece of this is we need to be really deliberate and thoughtful about building equity into all aspects of this transition. I mean, what we know is that low and moderate income communities and communities of color have historically been disproportionately harmed by our fossil fuel based energy system. And we really want to look to this transition to clean energy, to seize those opportunities to mitigate these problems by focusing on equity. But that requires a lot of changes, changes in how we operate. We need to ensure we're bringing all parties to the table when decisions are being made. That includes local community groups. and includes understanding their needs and their perspectives as we talk about siting for new plants, transmission builds, as we look at job opportunities, workforce training, all of those require, again, thoughtful inclusion of all voices in in these decision-making process. And it requires careful accounting of the benefits and the opportunities so that we can design things to be more equitable in access and track those benefits following up. And it also, again, requires when we look at deployment incentives to really think through how to make those equitable from tax credits to to policies like net metering to to others to ensure that incentives that are put in place to accelerate deployment do not transfer any additional costs to low and moderate income households.
2: Yeah. You mentioned something earlier that I'm not very familiar with, and I was hoping you might be able to expand on it. You referenced the, the current administration's Justice 40 Goals which I think you said it's to deliver 40% of the benefit from the transition to underserved communities. Can you elaborate on that a little further, maybe give us a little more background on those Justice 40 goals?
0: Yeah, so the the Justice 40 goals are, you know, an important priority for the president and and for the Department of Energy, which has created and re-energized an existing office to really focus on leading these efforts across the department under uh, Shalanda Baker. So as you well stated back, the justice 40 initiative is focused on 40% of the benefits of the, our investments in the department of energy and the energy transition flowing to communities that have been under resourced or disadvantaged historically. You know, accomplishing those goals requires like a multiple prong approach from ensuring our research and investment dollars are enabling colleges, universities and others in underserved areas to participate to when we support technical assistance, when we do technology demonstrations, when we support deployment to being very focused on opportunities to support that work in these under resourced areas, and to creating the the resources and support that are needed to bring the community groups and relevant organizations to the table to help design those opportunities, to help ensure they're aware of them and they know how to participate in them. And so it's a, a significant initiative that is becoming part of all the work that we do at the department.
2: Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you for getting into that. That was kind of an added bonus, frankly, of the conversation. The reason I was hoping you'd expand on it is that within the corporate and industrial, there's a lot of talk about making sure that their investments are resulting in equitable benefits. And Hearing you outline how, at the federal level, there are clearly stated goals, there are people responsible for measuring and monitoring it, and there are kind of metrics and standards that you're being looked at. I think that that frankly gives the commercial sector almost a model or a framework within which to look at their efforts to make sure that the investments and moves that they're making are, in fact, done equitably. So thank you for that. It sounds like a lot of land is going to need to be used to power 40% of the grid with solar. Where will all this new solar go?
0: Yeah, so we've talked about by 2035, expecting to need about 1,000 gigawatts or a terawatt of solar. As we look out to 2050, it could be three times that amount as we think about decarbonizing our economy. So there can be the additional electrification, as we talk about, like moving to electric vehicles. But also there will be segments of the economy that, that won't be electrified, but may require clean fuels like hydrogen that, require, that are produced through electricity. And so we did some rough estimates there and estimate that by 2050, it could take... 3,000 gigawatts, 3 terawatts of, of solar to meet all those needs if we're using significant electricity to produce clean fuels. So that's that's a lot of solar. But in fact, it's not as much land as, as some some may think. So we're looking at solar requiring about half a percent of the surface area in the U.S. And just to put that in context... That's about 5% of the U.S. Is, is an urban area or paved roadway. 43% of our land is agriculture. So significantly less than these amounts. We could meet about 1,000 gigawatts or a terawatt of solar demand on rooftops alone. And so a significant fraction of that solar could, could go on rooftops, right? We said paved surfaces, urban areas all, already. So there's a lot of options for how we could meet these land needs.
2: Super. When I talk to members of our community who were some of the early adopters who are well down the road, they're no longer concerned about setting their goals. They're no longer concerned about how they're going to achieve their goals. They've got great plans in place. They've got track records of success. And they're now moving on to being concerned about the grid and will the grid be ready to accept and accommodate all of the things that they're trying to do. So increasingly, to my way of thinking, modernizing the grid and having the grid ready to evolve, to accommodate this transition is is really one of the biggest potential obstacles. So I'd like to spend the next couple minutes talking about grid integration. What do you think are some of the anticipated challenges from a grid integration standpoint to allow us to achieve this increase in penetration from three to forty percent solar.
0: The biggest challenge is just the need to operate the grid in a very different way than, than we're operating it today. And it's not that this operation won't work. We have pilot demonstrations like which was done between first solar and, and the California independent system operator. Five or so years ago, that showed that solar plants can be as effective, and potentially in some cases more effective than conventional generators at providing, you know, essential grid services. So it's not that these plants can't do this, but it's it's the fact that we will be relying operating the grid in a very different way, and grid operators need experience and confidence in doing that. So they, these challenges come primarily from the variability. Of solar and wind, the large additions of storage that are needed, and the fact that these solar, wind, and battery resources are inverter-based resources. And then with these high levels of penetration, we're going to have times of the day and times of the year where segments of the grid are running entirely on inverter-based resources, which today are not used to any significant extent to support grid reliability. And I guess that leads
2: to a follow-up around technologies. What Technologies do you think will be needed at the grid, on the grid, at the grid edge to enable this integration of increased
0: solar? Yeah, inverters and power electronics are going to be essential. Again, we have a lot of the capabilities that are needed. We're advancing the capabilities of what we call grid forming inverters to support the reliability of the grid, but we need a lot more grid operators need a lot more experience using these technologies. We need continued development and energy storage technologies to support a few hours of storage or to support long duration storage. Uh, well, we also need dispatchable, what we call firm capacity, so that if we have you know a week where there's not a lot of sun and not a lot of wind, there's enough capacity to meet our electricity needs. So that can either come from long duration storage or from firm capacity such as combustion turbines that are run off of hydrogen or other clean fuels. And certainly technology advances are are needed to bring the cost down for those types of technologies.
2: Yeah. Are, Are there any technologies in particular that you're really excited about that, while you may be very familiar with them, our listeners might not, that you think are going to help facilitate this rapid transition
0: yeah, well, the grid forming inverters that I mentioned, I'm excited about not just because of their capability to support voltage and frequency regulation all of these grid services, but also because of the capability we're developing for Black Start capability. This is needed on the bulk system, but another thing I'm excited about is the use of these grid-forming inverters with the solar and energy storage systems that we are deploying on the distribution system. I think we have an opportunity to fundamentally change how we think about energy resilience as we deploy more and more energy storage and solar on on the distribution system so that when we have outages, we don't always need to wait for the bulk power system to come back up to meet the essential loads Meet these critical loads, I mean, the fire department, the police station, maybe grocery stores, those facilities they are providing critical services, we could bring those back up utilizing the solar and energy storage and other generation resources on the distribution system. I mean, today, it's very common to have backup power for an individual building. But one of the things we're thinking about is, is how we build in that flexibility in the distribution system so that you don't have to have those resources on a building. If that's a, that building is a critical load, they can be nearby in the community and they can be you know in real time routed to provide those critical loads in the event of an outage. And I'm, I'm really excited about that. It's a different paradigm, a different way that we think about resilience. And I, I think it could offer some real benefits.
2: Yeah, well, that sure is a different paradigm. And if as part of the transition, we can improve the resiliency of the grid, wow, that's a feature that certainly hasn't been discussed at this point. So I'll I'll really look forward to kind of following more uh, on, on that, Becca.
0: Yeah, and it's unfortunately something I think we need just more and more as we're seeing climate change drive an increase in the number of natural disasters that that we have that are creating outages. So I think, unfortunately, something that's going to become more and more important.
2: Yeah, it is. And, and and in our research, we see resiliency becoming a more important factor in consideration for the large power users in our community. And we're surprised to see how few of them have a real solid fix on kind of the costs associated with that and plans and strategies to manage it. So So this would be this would be a really enhanced benefit to the transition. So from a fundamental standpoint, you know we're going from this concentrated generate, this centralized generation model to a much more decentralized generation model. You've talked about some of the technologies. What essential changes in the grid do you think are, are going to be needed?
0: Well, grid modernization as a whole involves a number of technologies that will be really important. Sensing technology, communication technology, didn't get into those when we were talking about technologies that enable this transition, but they're incredibly important as well, especially today because solar generation on the distribution system is often not visible because we don't have the right sensing and communication. It's not visible or controllable to grid operators. So, So a lot of enabling technologies, in addition to transmission it's hard it's hard to talk about this energy transition without talking about the need for new transmission and you know we find by 2050 we need about a doubling in transmission expansion the more transmission we build the more flexible the grid is potentially the less storage is needed but certainly some transmission build out is, is needed either way to access sites that have uh, high you know solar and, and wind resource and so that's that's a significant change as well, in addition to kind of the, the new operating regime that comes from these the growth in, in solar, wind, and battery storage, and as well, new opportunities to change how we operate the grid in, in events of an outage, as we were just talking about.
2: Well, that's a mind-bender to think that twice the transmission is going to be needed. <laughs> kind of, who's, who's going to build that? How's that going to happen? Who's going to own it? I'm curious, how do you think we double the transmission?
0: There's certainly big challenges there that are need a wide variety of folks with many talents to tackle, you know, from from siting to cost allocation to all the dimensions of that. That is certainly not going to be an easy challenge. And, and DOE, through its Office of Electricity, is, is really accelerating its efforts to support that work as well.
2: Interesting. Well, that's great. Thank you for sharing that. I guess that leads, and I mentioned to you earlier, there was a Wall Street Journal op-ed today. Talking about the point of view of the author was that the energy transition in the UK was not as effective as it could have been because the pace of change on the large power users and corporates exceeded the pace of change on the grid. And while customers were changing rapidly and dramatically, the grid was taking the approach of marginal incremental changes. So the argument was you need more rapid, more dramatic change at the grid in order to accommodate the rapid changes taking place with with customers. So I guess there's got to be a policy piece here. What policies do you think are needed to enable grid modernization that will kind of facilitate integration of these dramatically increased renewables?
0: Yeah, and policies can certainly help accelerate change and ensure that cha- change is thoughtful and well-planned out and efficient and effective if, if done right. Instead of talking about specific policies, I'll, because I think there's you know, a number of ways that these things can be done, I'll talk about the changes I think that are needed that policies can help drive. One is, which also involves use of tools, but is getting to faster decision-making related to citing zoning, permitting, interconnection, all of what we call the soft costs of deployment, be that solar deployment, wind deployment, transmission, you know, we need to continue to develop the tools and potentially have, you know, the right incentives in place to allow for fast and confident decision-making because this energy transition to do this by 2035 requires everything to just accelerate so tremendously. We need grid operators to get experience operating power grids now in fundamentally different ways. And again, that's something that will likely need some form of incentives and support to accelerate the learning curve there to start to get some of this learning before the system looks like it will when it is decarbonized. And, you know, another important piece is is cost allocation to support these infrastructure upgrades. And that's something that's been a real challenge and renewable pl- deployment to date is having effective cost allocation. So it's not just the first entity that wants to build a plant that requires upgrades and has to bear that that enormously high cost without knowing if they will recover any of that cost, but having methods like ERCOT has done or others to develop cost allocation upfront to make those costs bearable for individual and, and first sighted plants using those upgrades.
2: Many of the folks in our community are going to find your comments about the need to make things like interconnection agreements easier. They're going to find that as music to their ears because one of the biggest challenges, particularly as it relates to deploying distributed energy resources, is the work associated with getting interconnection approvals in place. It's painful. It can take a year, 18 months, up to two years to get something deployed that They're able to afford and ready to build, and the only obstacle is is getting it plugged into the grid. So what you've said there makes a lot of sense. Becca, this has been a great review of the Solar Office and the Solar Future Study. Given the extent of the study, we could go on and on, drilling down further. But I think for this conversation, we've really touched on the key points very nicely I'd now like to move on to, to my favorite part of Smart Energy Voices, where we get to know our guests a little better. So now it's all about you. You've done a lot in a relatively short period of time. How did you get started in renewable energy and what's been your career progression?
0: Yeah, so I, I actually got interested in renewable energy quite quite early Starting in in elementary school, I had a teacher who did a unit on the destruction of the rainforests, which ignited a passion in me to do environmental work with my career. And started early, you know, starting recycling clubs and school and, and things of that nature. And at the same time, realized that, you know, I really loved math. And so I thought I thought I would be an environmental engineer, in high school, we had an assignment where we had to shadow environmental engineers. And I found that all the environmental engineers in the county I grew up, which there were only about five, they all worked at the sewage treatment plant. And I thought, well, I need to refine a little bit better what I what I want to do here. I, I don't think that's what I had in mind when I thought about, you know, trying to, to do some engineering work to, to help our planet. And I, you know, stepped back at that point and just got really excited about solar energy, thinking, you know, this is the inexhaustible source of energy that hits our planet. Our energy problems are at the at the root of so much of our environmental problems. And then got excited from there, there on out in solar and have been focused on, on solar and renewable energy ever since.
2: Okay. Yeah, the move to clean energy as compared to that experience in high school, makes a great deal of sense. I find it interesting that you were inspired at a young age, as uh, I I found several of our guests have stories that they share of where at a very young age, they knew that that was a path that they wanted to pursue. You're obviously very modest, but I I, I do have to ask you to tell us a little bit about the 13 patents that you have. And I think 13 is the right number. Tell us about that element of your career and I mean, how does one decide to pursue patents and how do you end up with 13 of them?
0: Most of those came from my time an industry with a startup company called Solar Junction, where we were pioneering the development of pretty new material to make high-efficiency solar cells. So that technology came out of Stanford University and led to the formation of the company. So we were doing really new, innovative work, taking something that had shown some initial promising results and turning it into world record efficiencies. So along that path, we were documenting and patenting in order to protect the company both the material science improvements that we learned as well as our device understanding so it was a really exciting opportunity to again take take a new relatively new material some people had had tried it in the past and and not been successful in using that material for solar and and developed that into some really high performing solar cells
2: would you say that's the most interesting of your 13 patents and if it's not, what would you say is is, is the most interesting of your 13 patents?
0: Uh, well, a large number of those patents were related to different pieces of that, so got the it, device structure it. of the world record cells or the materials themselves. So yes.
2: Well, congratulations on that. As uh, kind of in line with talking about your accomplishments as an engineer and, and scientist, what would you say is the most proud point of your career to date?
0: I'd say helping to build just an incredibly talented, thoughtful, and hardworking team in DOE's solar office, team of folks who are supporting solar innovation, accelerating deployment throughout the country. They're each of those people because they're passionate about the work that we're doing. And we've been working together, especially over the last couple of years, to build a more inclusive, thoughtful, respectful culture within our office that I think makes it a really special place to work.
2: I'm sure it's not all been easy. What's been the biggest challenge that you've had to face and overcome during your career to date?
0: Certainly been a lot of challenges. So I I don't know about the biggest, but I can highlight a few of them. On the personal front, one was finding a job that felt like it was a, a good fit for me. So, while I early on felt strongly I wanted to dedicate my career to working in solar, it took me some time to figure out how to do that in a way that aligned with my passion and brought me joy. You know, I found that at early stage, kind of basic research that was hoping in decades to change the world didn't get me excited enough. I actually found that I didn't love tinkering in the lab. I really loved doing computation and analysis. And I loved managing people. So it there was a lot of internal struggle as I felt so motivated to pursue a type of career path, but couldn't quite find the way to do that that you know, made me feel alive and, and passionate about the work. Professionally speaking today, it's a, it's a constant challenge in how busy we are and the number of things we try to take on to make the time to step back, focus on the big picture and make sure as running as fast as I can, that we're going in the right direction. Uh, and I think that's probably a challenge that that many folks feel uh, in this day and age with our level of connectivity and and all that we're doing, but uh, certainly has been true in my experience. And then on the solar side, it's an enormous challenge to try to have the people pieces that are so important to solar deployment, how to try to have them keep up with <laughs> the speed of technology innovation, you know we've just seen incredible rates of technology innovation, costs coming down eighty to ninety percent in a decade, new products on the market almost every year with higher efficiencies, better functionality, different structures, and yet deployment and, and harnessing all of these capabilities and advances requires bringing people along at the same speed of that. And, and that's a real challenge. We, we call that soft costs at DOE, but how we get permitting processes, state, local, grid operator planning, how we get decision makers and people to be able to harness all of this innovation at a comparable rate of change has been, has been a big challenge. And we find that the technology costs come down much faster than what we call these soft costs. We found that for many years. Well, getting people
2: aligned and getting
0: organizations aligned
2: is often cited as one of the most difficult challenges that members of our community find in implementing change in their organizations. I'm not surprised to hear that you've experienced that. But in terms of kind of figuring out the path you were going to pursue as a challenge, it certainly sounds like you did figure it out and you're doing a you're doing a great job and you've got this. Ambitious, visionary mindset, and you've got the Department of Energy and a two hundred and eighty million dollar budget behind you. I would say that's a pretty good formula for success. When you think about the future, Becca, what impact do you ultimately want to have on the renewable energy industry?
0: Yeah, I mean, I want to be part of the community that's really driving toward this equitable energy transition. So, I my passions are in addressing climate change through technology innovation and and accelerated deployment and supporting a more equitable future for our country through this work. I think that's needed in so many aspects of of our country, not just in energy, but I see my piece of that, uh, you know, supporting that through the work that I do from how I manage the solar office to how, how we shape the investment decisions we make at DOE. Yeah, well,
2: 2035 is only 14 years from now. <laughs> so, I have a feeling you're going to be uh, in the thick of it, and hopefully, raising a toast to having accomplished the goals and vision that was set out in this Solar Future Study. Becca, thank you so much for joining us here today. We're very proud to be the first podcast that's had a chance to speak with you following the release of the Solar Future Study. We really uh, we appreciate your your insights, your time, and we look forward to following your continued impact on the renewable energy industry and our successful journey as a nation along this energy transition.
0: Thanks so much, John. It's been, been great to be here today and uh, encourage anyone who's interested in learning more to uh, look up the Solar Future Study on the Department of Energy Solar Office website.
2: Yeah, well, that's a great point. And in fact, you know what we'll do? We'll have it posted on the show notes page of the podcast. To all, all of our listeners, when you're done listening to the podcast, go ahead and download the Solar Future study. It, it'll be right there on the show notes page to make it easy for you. To our listeners, thanks for listening and being a part of the Smart Energy Decisions community. If you enjoyed this very special episode with Becca, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Tell your colleagues and peers about it. To learn more about how you can become a part of our next event, see the links in our show notes or visit the events tab of our website, smartenergydecisions.com. We're excited about sharing conversations with leaders of the energy transition like Becca in this podcast, on our website, and at our events, all in the interest of helping you make smart energy decisions. Thanks and have a great day.
1: listening to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast. Digest the insights from today's episode and take action on the ideas that have inspired you. Join us every Friday for conversations with smart energy leaders. We also invite you to check out another SED podcast, Beyond the Meter. Each episode of Beyond the Meter features innovative energy projects and initiatives by large electric power users. To keep up to date with trends and happenings in the energy transition, visit smartenergydecisions.com to register for our daily newsletter and become part of the Smart Energy Decisions community.